Welcome to Coach House Talks. We're going to look at doubt today. Now, I know that no one in here has ever struggled with doubt. And that from day one, you've always had a complete and unswerving grasp of what it means to be Christian and live with complete focus on heaven and eternity. No one in here will have ever questioned whether their sins have been forgiven. If God is actually real, and if he is, does he love me? No one in here wants to be remotely linked with Thomas in the New Testament. You know, the guy that always can't escape that descriptive that comes before his name. Thomas the Doubter. Doubting Thomas. Okay. You know I'm kidding. I think we can all agree that in reality, we do doubt. Don't we? Show of hands, if you've ever doubted since becoming a Christian. Oh, there you go. Do you know why I know that? Because this book tells me that that's going to be the case. We always doubt. In fact, I would probably make the argument here in front of you that doubt forms part of our discovery, our journey of discovery, if you like. Something's new and it's part of progressing that understanding in our life. Something came to me this morning when I was ironing my shirt. I was ironing my shirt. I oh, know you probably can't tell. I was ironing my shirt and it came to me this morning that the only way you cannot have doubt is if you never have a thought in your head. You never think about anything. Because if you think about anything at all, you're always going to have some element of doubt about how that's going to work out or kind of what's going to be at the end of something or the end of a decision-making process. It's part of our everyday life. And unless we're not thinking about anything and unless we're not making any decisions ever, we will all encounter doubt. We all have periods of doubt. But hopefully, with regards to our relationship with Jesus, hopefully they're momentary and they don't do us any lasting harm or lasting damage. And in fact, doubt can be used to strengthen our understanding of our relationship with Jesus. We've all gone through stuff. And then when we come out at the end of it, even though we may have doubted, when we come out at the end of it, we are stronger for it. There's a, an acronym for doubt. This is actually a, 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 a dictionary definition. Doubt, debating on understanding, bewildering thought. So we debate in our mind thoughts that are overwhelming us and that are bewildering us that we can't put into comprehension with what we know. Doubt. And that's simply why we doubt. We're overcome with thought processes that we find difficult to relate to or fit into our earthly understanding of how we'd like it to work out. Remember, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon basically drew a line under every activity under the sun and declared it meaningless. I've tried to understand life and all of its twists and its turns, pleasures and distractions, and found that nothing makes sense. Now that's doubt, isn't it? And like Steve told us last week, if you were here, we need to readjust our focus 
and look at everything in life through the lens of Jesus. We can't, let, we can't put Jesus aside. We can't put God out of the equation and hope to make sense out of life. Without Jesus, without God, we are left in a world of swirling doubt with no solidity, nothing to build on, no framework. God sent Jesus to make sense of our very existence. And he shows us the way back to God. Now, if we fail to understand that, then we will continue to just go through life in a meaningless manner. As we see many people outside of God's kingdom doing every day. So, let's put ourselves in doubting Thomas's shoes for a second. Are you all right? Should we go on a journey? Are you all right to put your feet in somebody else's shoes? Jesus has spent three and a half years declaring truths about himself, performing miracles, and teaching with authority and power in front of 12 disciples living close by him, including this guy, Thomas. Now, Thomas, like all of the other disciples, was hoping for the promised Messiah who would come and rescue Israel from its oppressors. Now, in that time, in the time of Thomas, the time of Jesus, it was the Roman Empire, as you will all know. Now, to have three and a half years of ministry and hope suddenly shattered, okay, because I want us to kind of put this in context. These guys were walking the earth with Jesus side by side. And for three and a half years, they built up all their hope. They, they built up everything, their trust that this was the Messiah, this was the Redeemer, this was the King who was going to set them free. And that was completely shattered for them as Jesus was led to a cross to die. That's not what they expected, is it? And I'm sure if you were in their shoes, that's not what you'd have expected either. You would have been hoping for something wildly different to that. He was taken from them, led away to be crucified. That is going to be a massive letdown for these disciples, whichever way you look at it. It produces a disconnect between the promises he's made, the promises that the Old Testament has given to them, it produces a disconnect between these. And more importantly, it disconnects what they thought was going to happen. Their preconception of what Jesus was going to do for them at that moment in time, in that very now. And it disconnected because all of a sudden, they're seeing Jesus being led away from them and put to death. Now, even though we tried to tell them that that was part of the process, they didn't think that was actually going to happen. They ran scared when that did happen. I hope you realise that. Not just Thomas. The whole lot ran scared. When Jesus was on the cross, they hung back. After that, they were hid away and locked away in a room for fear. And I can imagine them saying... We've put all of our trust in this guy, and now he's not here. How are these promises now going to be fulfilled? What's going to happen to us? Where does it leave us now? 
all kinds of thoughts would have been smashing through their heads. I'm pretty sure that we would also raise similar questions with things, when things do not go the way that we hope they will. How do we cope when someone that we've been praying for doesn't get healed? How do we cope when somebody's phone goes off in the middle of a deep and meaningful statement? See, we have to realise that God has a totally different plan and purpose to what sometimes we hope it is, or what we hope it will look like. And it's that disconnect, it's that distance between what God is going to do and what we would like him to do. In that gap there is where doubt breathes. So this week has been a difficult week for me. It's been a, you know, that doubt comes smashing in because the reality of what's going on around us hits us. Now, before we pull Thomas apart, all the disciples will have encountered doubt. Not just Thomas, who has his moniker, Doubting Thomas, but all of the disciples but they had the benefit of a week's head start on Thomas. If you read your scripture, you'll see that Thomas was not there when the Lord appeared to the rest of the disciples. He got his chance a week later. And that's why we get this scenario that somehow he was less than the others. John's Gospel tells us in chapter 20, verse 19, that that Sunday evening the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, all of them, all the disciples, locked away for fear. Jesus was not there, stood by their side anymore. And they felt vulnerable and they questioned, I'm sure, everything that they'd seen in the last three and a half years. Now, interestingly, and I just want to point this out for the sake of defending Thomas a little bit. Interestingly, the previous section of the chapter before that statement ends with Mary Magdalene coming to the disciples and telling them that Jesus was alive. And it appeared to her with a message for them. So before they locked themselves away, Mary Magdalene had come to them and said to them, chapter 20, verse 18, Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his personal message. And yet they were still locked in a room, feared, doubting. See, the disciples were bridging this gap in their thinking between the death of Jesus and their immediate danger from the authorities for being one of Jesus' followers and the news that Jesus, who gave them boldness and hope, was suddenly back and alive. Talk about having your head messed with. No wonder they were in doubt. There would have been all kinds of emotions going through. I'm not sure where your head would be at if you were one of those disciples. If you were in those shoes, where would your head be at? I'm sure that mine would be all over the place. Fear, hope, joy, even unbelief. This wasn't just an ordinary occurrence. Thomas gets a raw deal, in my opinion. 
He asked for the same evidence that the other disciples had already had the benefit of. Jesus himself had appeared to them and shown them his wounds. In fact, in Mark's account, if you read Mark's account, all 11 disciples were together when Jesus rebuked them all for unbelief. In this case, they were told off for disputing Mary's words to them. So Mary's come to them, told them Jesus is alive. Jesus sent them a personal message. Therefore making Mary the first evangelist, by the way. She went to them and she said, Jesus is alive. Come and see for yourself. And Jesus had to rebuke them for their unbelief and not taking Mary's words on board. But their assurance that followed and the evidence of seeing Jesus before them with his marks of his crucifixion proved to their confused mind. It took all the muddled thoughts that were kind of floating around. It took all the joy and the unbelief and everything and it kind of mashed it all back together. And the evidence before them proved to them without any doubt in their hearts that this was Jesus back among them. Their doubt was answered with evidence. And in fact, Jesus showed his hands to the disciples. And in Thomas's case, put your fingers in if you need to. Whatever it takes, believe. So how do we deal with doubt? I mean, our series is dealing with, I don't want to just tell you what doubt is. We need to deal with doubt because doubt is a real thing that we all encounter. So how do we deal with doubt? Well, Jesus knew very well how to deal with doubt with the disciples with evidence. He showed himself. So let me just say something before we kind of go any further. How do we deal with each other's doubt? Well, the Bible tells us to do it gently. It tells us to be gentle with each other. Jude Only one chapter in Jude, if you want to read Jude just before Revelation. Dead easy to read in five minutes. If you've got a spare five minutes of a cup of tea in your hand. And in there you'll find verses 20 to 23. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. And await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. And in this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. and Show mercy to sinners, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. What are those words telling us? That sin should be dealt with. Okay, let's, let's kind of not have a cheap grace and a cheap gospel here. Sin needs to be dealt with. But how do we deal with that? Well, I would say Jesus is our great example. How do we deal with it? With grace and love and mercy. Not beating each other up with sticks. Being over authoritarian. Kicking people out of churches. Denying people this, that and the other to bring them into line. No, with love and grace and mercy. The same way 
in which you would like to be treated. Now, I say this all the time. If you want love in the church, if you want this love to be united, this church to be united behind things, if you want this church to grow, then what we have to do is to treat each other in the same grace that we would hope to be treated by. And in fact, we are treated by, by Jesus. Because we do not deserve anything. And yet God in his grace and his mercy allows you into his presence. We can't force our way in. He allows us in. Okay? So he shows us great grace and great mercy. Now, that is how we should deal with each other. With grace and with mercy. But we mustn't let sin get away with it. We must deal with sin as well. So, did you hear what that said, that passage? Show mercy, be gentle with those among us whose faith is wavering. With those who are showing some doubt. Which you've all put your hands up and said, oh yeah, I've encountered that, we all doubt. Okay, so the onus is on us to treat each other gently and with grace and with mercy because every person in this place doubts at some point or other. So when you read the account of Thomas's doubt, it's easy to see it in a critical light. It's easy to read and go, oh, look at him. What, a f- what an idiot. How come the other disciples believed and he didn't? Well, I think I've shown you that actually the other disciples were in the same shoes. We refer to him as doubting Thomas. But let me tell you something. Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't harp on and on and on and on about Thomas's doubt. He just said, put your fingers in if you need to, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. You see, Jesus' words are actually worth recounting. In John 20, verses 27 to 29, Jesus says to Thomas, put your fingers here and look at my hands. Put your hands into the wounds in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. And what's this, what does he do? My God, my Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. And then Jesus told him, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. See, Jesus stood before Thomas knowing his heart and what he needed. And basically he said, bridge the gap in your thinking, Thomas. Overcome your doubt and become stronger by accepting the evidence before you. The evidence of Jesus was then passed on by his eyewitnesses and comes to us through the written testimony contained in this, God's Word, the Bible. In fact, John concludes his chapter by telling us that the things of Jesus are written down so that you, we, may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And the use of the word continue makes it an ongoing process. Hey, that gives us hope, doesn't it? How many of you, when you've got saved, or how many of you can remember when you got saved thinking, I can change the world. Everything's new. I've got this power in me and I've got this truth revealed to me. Hey, I am invincible. And then a couple of months later, maybe, some cases it's days, sometimes it's weeks, sometimes it's months, sometimes it's years. There just comes that nagging, oh, was it real? Was it true? 
I have to say to you that my conversion experience was a step-by-step process. I knew what happened on day one, by the way. But it just needed reinforcing and reinforcing and reinforcing. And it still needs reinforcing. That's why we gather together as saints. That's why we gather in church. That's one of the purposes of church, to strengthen one another in the truth. You see, I think all of our doubts... Well, let me, let me just slip back a second, sorry. It's an ongoing process. But it doesn't just stop with God's words here and, in, and an ability for us to just read this and hope it makes sense. Because Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to help us, guide us, comfort us, and empower us to bring these truths to all generations. We are given power to overcome doubt. And we're given evidence in which to have that assurance. And we bring those truths to all generations. In fact, we bring this truth to all creation. See, that power and that truth has been in, under attack since, well, since forever, really. Doubt isn't something new. It's not a newfangled thing that comes in with new thinking or what's happening in the world around us. Yes, all of that is engaging with doubt and it's all designed to make us doubt as well. But it isn't something new. It's been around since Eve was tempted to question God in the beginning. So I suppose that doubt can be categorised with the question, what if? What if? What if that conversion wasn't real? What if that love that I'm feeling now is just something that's going to wash out next time I have a bath? You see, that gap between what we know and what we don't know is where doubt lives. It's where Satan has his playground. It's where he'll come and attack you. It's where he'll come and nudge you. It's where he'll come and slip by your side, just as he did with Eve. Thomas, for example knew the words of Jesus. He knew the promises of Jesus. But it didn't look like how he pictured it. This was not going the way that he pictured it. And there was this gap. And into that gap comes Satan. The only way for Thomas to dispel his doubt was to physically examine the body of Jesus. And Jesus knew that's exactly what he needed. Jesus, who was dead, but now is alive, put your hands there. It was really important for Thomas, by the way, because he became one of the apostles. You know, he became one of those people that's an eyewitness. He's going, telling people. It's really important. And Satan's plans are always counted by God's love and provision. Always. The Bible, from start to end, conveys this truth. Satan doesn't win. His promised eternity is in hell with the rest of his scheming sidekicks. That's the end. That's the story. That's what's going to happen. See, we have God's rescue package available to us at every turn. And scripture is full of God's rescue package. Starts with Adam and Eve, then it goes to Noah, then it goes to Abraham, then it goes to Israel. And then eventually it comes to us, God's rescue package package. Package. He's always had it in mind. He's always had it there for us. 
So Satan's job is to distract and delude. Because God's got something for you. He's given you a promise. He's given you an assurance. He's given you everything that you will need to have eternity with him. And Satan cannot snatch that from you. Because scripture tells us that. It cannot be snatched from you. But you can be urged to give up on it. You can be urged to give up on it. And that's what Satan tries to do. He tries to distract and delude in the hope that we don't take hold of all that God has promised to us. Now, let me just clarify something. When Jesus said to Thomas, don't be faithless any longer, believe, it's really important that we grasp what this means, what this meant to Thomas. It wasn't a doubt of meaningless things. It was the doubt of the truth that brings life, Jesus himself. And that's why Jesus had to encounter it so significantly with Thomas and the rest of the disciples. Because Jesus is the lens through which everything has to be considered. Having faith in Jesus, who Jesus is, the purpose of Jesus, how his birth, death, resurrection and ascension determine God's route for our salvation and restored fellowship with God. They are the truth that matters. And this is what the Bible calls faith. Your faith is in those things. Your faith is not in meaningless things or the things that people try and attach to the Bible. This is really important. If you don't believe this, then you're in trouble. No. The things that are always reinforced when it comes to faith are the birth, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. That's it. Because that is God's rescue plan. That's what faith is. Faith in the truth and the knowledge and the understanding and the acceptance of those facts. You see, we can debate all kinds of other things. And, this may shock you, you can hold different opinions from each other as to how we determine God's truth as revealed in Scripture. Oh, I'm going to get burnt as a heretic of that one. You see, what I'm, what I'm kind of saying and what the disciples and what the apostles say, what the, what the epistles have been written to the church for as well, is to say, look, these are the standards. This is the stuff you need to believe in. All this other stuff in your life that you pile into church, that you pile into your system of belief and everything else, some of it comes from your Greek culture, some of it comes from this, and you pull it all together and you try and make a mishmash of it. All the way that cuts through all of that is, no, 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 no. Your faith is this. Jesus is the only way. I don't really care how that looks. Just keep hold of that. Jesus is the only way. That's the faith structure. That's what you need to hold to. You see, it's not wrong to hold a different opinion from each other on certain things. We hold different opinions. We hold different opinions. It may shock you this, but if we debated the entire Bible, we would have different opinions to each other on some things. Is that wrong then? Well... Most of the New Testament is written to correct people's thinking or to say even, just let that one slide. It's not important. This is the important bit. 
You can let that go. You, can, you don't have to make a doctrinal stance on that. This is the stuff you make your doctrinal stance on. Is Jesus real? And if he is, believe it. And let him determine your change in attitude and thinking as time goes on. When our core values are brought into that frame, though, when our core values are brought into that debating circle, that's when we start to have problems. It's when churches start to have problems. It's when churches go, you know what? In fact, they don't do that. They either debate what's in the central bit and they think, oh, there's something not right there. Jesus can't have been born of a virgin, so therefore he wasn't. And so we have a divide of a core faith statement. But then others come along and say, no, no, we want what we believe is outside here. I want to ram that into the core statement. And actually, you're, you're not a Christian unless you believe that as well. And they add stuff in. And we see churches divide and divide and divide and divide and keep dividing. The disciples, for example, debated as to who would be given the best seat in heaven. Not important. Whether Jesus preferred fishermen to tax collectors, not important. Whether the perfume was better as a foot wash or a money for the poor, and so on, and so on, and so on. They were all important to them, but it didn't determine their faith. It didn't determine their standing with God. It's just something that they wanted to kind of force upon everyone else. Similarly, it's okay for us to hold to different views on some things. They are good to debate and challenge and eventually, I suspect, lay down and surrender as we are shown that there is another way of understanding. Until we gain more revelation, which allows our minds to be open to another way of thinking, until revelation brings evidence, then this kind of thinking is okay. But when it comes to understanding the core principles of our faith, these determine our right standing and righteousness before a holy God and they are not to be trifled with. The church in Corinth, for example, was a complete mishmash of traditions, religious views, emerging cultures, and yet the Apostle Paul, when he writes to them, gives them a platform on which all of them can stand. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul uses a recognised term. All right? He says, I pass on to you. Now, if we'd have done the communion from 1 Corinthians, the passage there, where Paul talks about he says, I pass on to you something which I've learned. What he's saying is, this is really important. It's a key thing and I'm passing it on to you because Jesus told me to. So it's important. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3. I passed on to you what was most important and has been passed on to me. Some translations have that as, I have delivered to you that of first importance. This is top of the tree. This is what you need to understand. Christ died for our sins. Just as the scriptures said, he was buried, he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter, then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have died. This is the most important statement you will ever hear, church in Corinth. Jesus died for your sins. And not only did he die, 
but he was resurrected again. And he was seen by witnesses. There's your statement of fact. There's your evidence. Believe it. See, this is the foundation of our faith, and it cuts through all the other stuff that we like to throw in there. And we all like to throw stuff in there, me included, okay? We've all got opinions on stuff. Some of us are more opinionated than others. I'm quite opinionated, but I'm learning to let go of stuff because you have to. You see, when I disciple people in the things of God, I've often said to them that there are things that we may not understand fully and only have a feeble grasp of. You know, a feeble grasp of what it means. That's okay, but we need to keep that in an open hand, okay? And I want you to kind of get hold of this. It's something I will tell to people over and over again. There are stuff that stays in an open hand that it's all right to debate, Okay? It can be challenged, it can be perfected, it can be changed, but it remains very gently held by you. Okay? Because you haven't had any further revelation on it. So what you think of it, what, how you understand it at this moment in time, is okay. On the other hand, we have a very closed fist. Very closed. And in that hand is the stuff that determines our faith, determines our standing with God. The stuff that Paul has said, this is the top layer. Hold it firm. Don't let go of it. Don't be challenged on it. And that is held in a very closed fist. Birth, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, they're all in there. And they shouldn't be challenged. But there's plenty of stuff you can hold in an open hand and talk to each other about, debate with each other about. But don't try and cram some of this stuff into here. Because all you do is create another church. So is it okay to doubt? Well, Scripture tells us, and many in here have attested to it, that when we doubt, we question. Well, question, questioning is what we believe, and testing it makes us stronger not weaker. Like I said before, unless you think about anything, if you go through life not thinking about anything, you're pretty useless, to be honest. You'll never doubt anything. It doesn't make you good, it just makes you weak. However, it's when we allow doubt to gnaw away at our core principles, close fist stuff. And some of that doubt, I have to say, is founded in sin. And we must deal with it. That's why scripture says we must deal with sin. We can't be soft on sin. It's the cornerstone of Jesus' death and resurrection. If we're soft on sin, then what we're saying is that Jesus' death and resurrection really did not matter to us. Because that's what he died for. He died to pay the price for our sin because we cannot do it ourselves. So if we continue in sin, knowingly, saying, okay, it's all right for me to do this. I'm going to acknowledge it, and I'm going to actually try and make excuses for it, which we do, then we're saying that that sacrifice wasn't enough. And that's rocky ground, people. We must deal with sin. And sin can often be the root of our doubt. We have to be really honest with ourselves here. Sin can often be the root of our doubt. 
We want to maintain, maintain control. Human beings, it's, our, it's in our nature. We want to maintain control. We want to enjoy forbidden things. But sin causes us to be stubborn. It hardens our heart. And the Bible tells us over and over again, do not harden your heart. Make sure it's soft enough for God to change you. See, when we harden our heart, we don't hear God's voice so clearly. And when we don't hear God's voice so clearly, it opens the way for Satan to get in there like he did with Eve. He sneaks in with the what if. What if? What if? What if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin? What if Jesus didn't really resurrect? What if the disciples did sneak him away and start a set of stories? Doubt itself, let me tell you, needs to be doubted. When you doubt, sometimes you have to doubt your doubt to stay on track. Why are we doubting should be perhaps our launch point for dealing with it before it becomes something which affects the way we live. Why am I doubting something? What's the core of this? What's the root of it? What's making me doubt? And if we're really honest, what we tend to find is it's sin or it's a trauma in our life which has put everything into question and throws us into a tailspin. But it could also be the slow, gentle prompting of the Holy Spirit, refining us and shaping us into the character of Jesus. Have you ever kind of put your hand out to do something and you know instinctively in your heart, like, no, I shouldn't be doing this. And this mental fight starts to go on in your head because you're reaching out, you're your body's doing something, but inside your heart, you know, actually, I shouldn't be, this isn't good for me. The gentle prompting of the Holy Spirit. I mean, no one, no one sins without conscience. Nobody. Nobody sins without God, first of all, trying to tell you, don't do this, don't do this. And if you're honest, you'll all know that. Sin is a gentle slide sometimes. But often we think process our way through it. We justify it. I'm going to do it anyway. And we start parking things that are prompting us. We start parking the Holy Spirit speaking to us and saying, mm, okay, I'll come back to you after I've done this because I really want to do this. And so this battle engages. So when that's happening to each other, as we've already been honest and said that we've all battled with it, when that's happening... Be gentle with each other. Don't dismiss one another when we're struggling. Be gentle with each other and help each other to be strong in the Lord. Encourage and strengthen our faith together in who Jesus is and what he's achieved for us. That is the most important stuff. See, I don't want doubt just to be the acronym we read before debating on understanding bewildering thought. I don't want it to be that, right? I'm going to change it. I want it to be this. Deciding on undeniable blessings and truth. Because that's a much more uplifting way of thinking about it. We might not understand what God is doing in our lives all the time, but we just have to trust. Trust that he has got undeniable blessings 
and that truth has been revealed to us. Truth being the evidence that we will need to overcome doubt. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.